you've entered the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. Hello, neighbors. You're really going to appreciate this episode of the Paracast. We're featuring an evening with Alan Greenfield, futurist, UFO investigator, paranormal investigator. You won't believe it. Stay tuned. Not in Kansas anymore. So, Mr. Greenfield, you and I have a history, and I want to well, explain this to that, our listeners. That more sinister, but why don't you give your version and and I'll alibi for us. Okay, well, I'll let you alibi. But basically, you and I started as teen UFO enthusiasts back in the 1960s, and where I like to start is where you and I were seated in a hotel room during one of your frequent visits to New York. I think it was one of those New Year's Eve type sessions where other people were out going wild and drinking and smoking and whatever. We'd sit there and talk all night. And then one night you had, I think it was where you had the copy of the book, The Incomplete Enchanter, with you or you referred to it. And we were seeing, both of us, that the common theory of UFO reality in those days, that these were spaceships, wasn't really making it. So would you pick up from there? Well, that's, um, actually that was a three-day non-stop conversation. (laughs) That is 72 hours of nonstop, and I actually at one point on the third day fell asleep and was still talking apparently, so I don't know what I channeled <laughs> during that period. But That was even uh, more interesting than the stuff you're going to talk about now. But I wouldn't remember what I, perhaps you would, but I, I know the tail end of it because I started to wake up and I was saying to you, and did you know, by the way, that Columbus is Jewish? And, uh, which I no longer think to be the case, but nevertheless, I found to be an interesting non-sequitur to whatever we were talking about before, but I do recall very clearly because the Incomplete Enchanter actually now it, it enfolded in a volume called The Complete, C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T Enchanter with all of the Harold Shea stories um, was one of my favorite books in my youth. It is fiction, of course, but it does suggest an idea of parallel universes and parallel realities and in the late 60s when I was doing the uh, New Year's Eve in uh, Midtown Manhattan thing, which I have fond memories of each and every year, including the one that we may not want to talk about in in the middle of Central Park with switchblade knives, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you couldn't have forgotten that one, but... Uh, no, I did not. Okay. Well, that's good. Oh, boy. But we'll, we'll leave that alone and skip right along to the more philosophical uh, parts of what we were doing. And what the point that I was trying to make at the time was that if you pursue the conventional view of UFOs, that they represent either entirely natural phenomena seen under extraordinary circumstances or alternatively that they uh, represent uh, spaceships from somewhere else, you're going to sooner or later hit a dead end. And this was before, of course, we had the kind of knowledge of Mars, for example, which was still in the running as, as a source for UFOs as late as that. Ten years later, that would have been implausible. And uh, now it would be presumably the Martians are staying out of the way of our two um, apparently immortal rovers walking around on the planet. So there may be water on Mars, but I seriously doubt that there are Martians on Mars. And likewise, we were not dealing with all of the parameters of the notion of why you would have visitations ongoing as you look deeper and deeper into the UFO mystery. You find that it takes on different forms and different eras. There are many questions that simply aren't dealt with in the extraterrestrial hypothesis if it 
can be so dignified. I was looking for an alternative because I was morally certain then and am now that there's a residue of phenomena that are not explainable in ordinary conventional terms. It doesn't mean they have a supernatural explanation, but they certainly seem to have a paranormal explanation. And I had to begin asking myself, well, where can we go? Given that we have a phenomenon that has certain consistencies and has had those consistencies throughout history, but also seems to vary with the observer. That is, seems to vary with the culture into which it's manifesting, with the times, with the expectations of the observer, etc. It's seen in space age terms, in terms of the space age. It's seen in um, supernatural terms, in terms of medieval times. And I suspect the further back you go, and if you're able to put a tagline on the, the culture of the time, you will find that uh, UFOs manifest pretty much in terms of the culture that it enters into. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. We're talking to Alan Greenfield. He's a futurist, UFO investigator, paranormal investigator, and he's author of some fascinating books that we'll be talking about shortly. But right now we're talking about the evolution of a theory. Go ahead, please. In any case, at that point, I began to look into, in a more serious manner, the uh, entertaining notion of alternative realities, The what I then call the alternate reality theory. Jim Mosley got around to calling it the 3.5D theory, and I think that, <laughs> that stuck better and has a little note of internal skepticism, which I think is healthy. But the, the notion is that perhaps there are parallel realities and that these have similarities to our own world, but that have enough differences that they only collide in certain instances, whether deliberately or otherwise, and they have a an inherently strange atmosphere around them that may account for some of the more unusual effects that we note with the UFOs and with especially in close encounter case, and also some of the variations between them, or among them, I guess you would say. And um, I've kind of evolved or devolved, depending on how you look at it, beyond that particular vantage point from around 1980 on. At this point, I would say I don't have a theory as to what they are. I've just eliminated a lot of things that they aren't. And um, uh, with some of the current work that I'm doing, I'm able to do a lot of prediction of cases, which satisfies one of the scientific criteria, which is reproducibility. But that doesn't mean that I know what they are. In fact, one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating and which is yet to be explored in as much depth as I would like to see is the notion that having seen UFOs from, let's say, the modern era beginning in 1947, which is almost 60 years ago, people seeing things close to or on the earth would immediately leap to the notion, if we don't understand this, they must be spacecraft from another planet. Now, if I erase all of my inputs and presumptions that I got from early UFO entertaining literature, I have to ask myself, why would that be the first thing that your mind goes to? I would think time machines or you know, almost anything would occur other than you didn't see it come from one planet to another. You see it here. So is it in some way related to us? here. Now, why immediately go to something that involves very, very complicated 
celestial mechanics and physics notions that uh, really defy um, a lot of the um, then current scientific thinking about the nature of the universe and limitations on space travel. Um, well, Alan, isn't part of the reason for that that the term alien has always been deployed to explain this and people don't immediately associate the term alien with things that are alien to our culture or alien to our civilization but instead alien to the earth well it depends on what you mean by the earth but uh, actually if you go back to uh, immediately earlier periods let's say as recently as the uh, 19th century in Ireland uh, the assumption was that when one saw these phenomena glowing lights and little beings, that one was dealing with the very other world, which is pretty much to say right next to our own and parallel to our own. You go further back and uh, even up to the present moment, some of the apparitions that are taken to be uh, religious phenomena, apparitions of the Virgin Mary, for example, are immediately thought of in those terms. But generally speaking, not here. Generally speaking, you get that in countries where you have that kind of expectation involved. And yet if you reduce it, the phenomenon as you hear about it to its common denominators, it's no different than a close encounter UFO case. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 19.95 for your first five-issue. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. (laughs) 
Hey, let me uh, tell our listeners you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Alan Greenfield joins us, futurist, UFO investigator, paranormal investigator. And he has some fascinating books out there that we want to tell you about, including Secret Cipher of the UFO Noths and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. And I really want to know about that. And go ahead, Alan. Would you expand on this definition? Okay, you mentioned the books. I started to think about them. And uh, okay, well, those are, by the way, two of a trilogy, the third of which uh, will be secret teachings, but I haven't yet even begun work on that. That's mm. a couple years down the line, so don't wait for it, folks, because there were 10 years between Secret Cipher's first edition and Secret Rituals, both of which are currently out from Minutus Press. Okay, well, and, you're talking here, of course, about parallel worlds, where we have these other creatures in this parallel universe that may be right adjacent to us. Now, are they using technology? to get it from here to there? Is this a natural phenomenon that you can kind of blink in one place and go into the other place? Well, that's the, that's the thing that I think is very, very difficult to make an assessment of. I think it was Arthur Clarke who said a truly advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic. And uh, it seems to me that um, if there is directedness in these cases, I think not the book, but the film, uh, The Mothman Prophecies, gets fairly close to a certain truth about that, which is it kind of depends on your perspective on it. You may consider something to be technological, and it may simply be where you're looking at things from. The example used in the film was the man standing uh, way up in a uh, building at a high floor and looking out on the same scene that someone at ground level is looking at. And, of course, they're going to see things in a different way, uh, namely the the person in the at the higher elevation is going to see a lot more. That doesn't necessarily mean that they have uh, better technology or anything better than having gone up an elevator and taken a look. And uh, likewise, if you want to reduce it to its most primitive terms, someone standing on top of a hill is going to be apt to see more than someone who's standing at the bottom looking in the same direction. The technology I don't take to be a given. The phenomenon may have more to do with chance than anything else. Of course, as people perceive it, there are definitely technological elements in modern cases, especially if those cases are in technologically advanced societies. You'll find throughout industrialized Europe and uh, in the United States that the cases tend to be very technological. You get into um, uh, third world societies, you'll find less technology and more elements that you might ordinarily associate with the supernatural. The question is whether those elements are not our minds filling in, whether by design or, or just as a, as a defense mechanism, for things that are really beyond our comprehension, like a um, referring back to the ingenious book on geometry, Flatland, like a two-dimensional being uh, observing a three-dimensional object. We may be three-dimensional beings observing objects which are four or let's say three and a half dimensions, in which case it might be only a, a, an aspect of it that we are 
perceiving. And then we fill in the rest because our minds do tend to fill in. Just as if you look at a cloud, you will tend to see shapes in it. If you look at the moon, depending on what you've been told and what your expectations are, you can see a face of a man, a face of a woman, or craters. It depends on your your presets, in a sense. And uh, Well, that said, Alan, I, I, I'd like to ask a question. When you have sightings that occur all around the world, and let's say, for example, some of these sightings involved clearly structured metallic craft that are witnessed by more than a few people at a time. In particular, I'm thinking about a pair of situations, one in Gulf Breeze, Florida, another in the Canaima National Park region in Venezuela, where there were two photographs taken years apart, and they show essentially the exact same structured metal craft. So at that point, don't you think we kind of move away from the overlays of cultural context? And at that point, we're looking at you know, if you have a structured metal craft, that would clearly suggest technology, don't you think? Not necessarily. It would suggest that the photographer and those around them, A, were seeing something unusual, and B, that there is some truth to the notion of photography. Up until uh, uh, Ted Sirius and the period where there was experimentation with being able to produce uh, and I might add there's some of this being done now with, with digital media, which is even more interesting. Things manifesting by virtue of uh, the mental state of the person who uh, produces it that show up on film. This is particularly true if you are. Let me back up a little bit. My feeling is the UFO mystery will never be solved if there is indeed a solution to it, as long as ufologists confine themselves to ufology. I have my, um, my fingers in many pots, so to speak, and uh, I try to know something about each one that I have it in so that I don't lose a finger or get one caught in a place I don't want it to be. And I try where it is appropriate to integrate my knowledge of area A with area B. And I find, for example, uh, and this is probably the easiest, easiest example to grapple with, the relationship between the, the phenomenon that show up in paranormal research and the phenomena that show up in UFO research to be extraordinarily close and reduced to their essential elements, often the same thing. In other words, apparition cases have the same fundamental elements, including cases where there seem to be authentic photographs of deceased individuals or ghostly apparitions of no known provenance or whatever, and UFO photographs. Yes, there are uh, um, UFO photographs that I would adjudge to be authentic in the sense that they are not tampered with. They are not ordinary natural phenomena as we understand natural phenomena in, in common parlance. But what they look like is determined to a large extent by the expectations or the shouted uh, uh, agreement, the group mind, if you will, of the people who are seeing it. If somebody says, look, a flying saucer, and the photographer looks and takes the picture, if this phenomenon is something that is 
outside of the range of what we customarily capture on film, outside the range of what we ordinarily see with our eye, with it, which after all the, the camera is in its own way an imitation of the, of the eye, you are going to, to some extent, modify the very thing you are looking at. That sounds very implausible until you realize that there are certain experiments in subatomic physics where it has been demonstrated uh, rather remarkably that the outcome of uh, experiments can precede the onset of the experiment at all, and also expectations can influence the outcome. You're talking here a little bit about quantum physics. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to a very old and dear friend of mine, Alan Greenfield, who I think is one of the great original thinkers in this field. He calls himself a futurist. He's author of a number of writings and books include Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. So therefore, Alan, you're saying that what we expect or what the group consciousness expects somehow influences what we actually see. Exactly. And I think that can be true in cases where you have, that would be as true for the um, so-called men in black cases as it would be for, for UFO cases. Tangibility or seeing, seeming tangibility is not necessarily a reliable way of assessing whether something is objectively true or not, especially if it's under very unusual circumstances. And in close encounter cases, and certainly in men in black cases, eerie circumstances, sometimes very difficult to define by the individual experiencing them, suggest that the state of consciousness of the person, either deliberately or otherwise, has been altered. Now, another place that I have a finger in is in ceremonial magic, which is a, a universe not only totally different from ufology, but the people involved in it are totally resistant, even hostile. I have, believe me, gotten lots and lots of high-level flack on this to the notion that what they're doing has anything to do with the UFO phenomenon. And yet, what a ceremonial magician traditionally does, which isn't necessarily all that applicable now, is they dress up in all sorts of hoodoo paraphernalia. They create an environment with incense and circles and whatnot, all of the kind of stuff that you see in, in movies. You get the woo-woo music in the background, whether it's coming from people standing around or people chanting or whatever. People alter their state of consciousness, and out of this smoke of the incense come certain types of beings. Well, I look at UFO cases, go back to the, the pristine case of Albert Bender, take him at his 
original word, not his revised word, as interpreted by our late mutual friend, Gray Barker. Uh And and we see that he actually had set up his room in much the same way a ceremonial magician would set up their room, with lots of, I imagine it was relatively primitive, probably a lot of Halloween stuff, but lots of gothic, moody pictures of monsters, no doubt taken from Forrest Ackerman's magazine or whatever, or the, the equivalent in that period. And at his door show up three, shall we say, apparitions uh, dressed in dark clothing. Well, the standard thing in in ceremonial magic is the appearance of what they call the black man, which has nothing to do with race. It has to do with a concept of a being in dark clothing who is often interpreted to be the devil in that particular context or some kind of demonic being. It seems to me that the, the rudiments of those are the same. A person puts themselves in, a, in an altered state of consciousness by virtue of their environment and by virtue of the way they're dealing with it. The being appears. It gives them a strange word or, or phrase and uh, often says a lot of things that are kind of non sequiturs at the time, but that uh, in time seem to uh, play out in some sort of meaningful way, either in that person's life or in the life of someone who hears about it or reads about it. Those are such common elements that I have to say that these are the same phenomena manifesting in two different contexts. And you know, I wanted to interrupt are. you very briefly here because the name Albert K. Bender is a name that hasn't been uttered in the UFO field for many, many years. I think a lot of people have a sense of what you're talking about based on your description of the beings that he supposedly met. But maybe you could give us a little bit more background on Bender and what happened after this visitation. I could say read the book, but I'm not that mean-spirited. I think the briefest possible way to describe Al Bender was he had his hand in a number of pots as well. In the early 1950s, he was a science fiction enthusiast, and that sort of mutated into an interest in the then rather new flying saucer uh, phenomenon. He, in turn, got some of his uh, science fiction buddies and contacts, which at that time was a relatively rarefied field as well. Uh, That has become part of mainstream culture now, some sci-fi, as they're now calling it. Old-line science fiction fans loathe that term, but uh, sci-fi is very common now. In the early 1950s, it was rarefied. One could say one knew every single writer in the field if you if you were at all persistent. In any case, he formed something of a synthesis of a science fiction fans who were interested in UFOs. In other words, who breached from the impermeable barrier between talking about weird stuff and talking about weird stuff as if it were real. He formed what is called the first uh, UFO club, which was small, but nevertheless was a pioneering group. It published a magazine which had a modest but significant circulation. Uh, He did some experimentation on his own of attempting to make contact with UFOs. He, as I said, uh, created a gothic environment in his own home 
uh, was visited by these uh, three characters in dark clothing who apparently scared the bejesus out of him and published another issue which said some really, really strange things about the, the future because of showing us where these things are, but the mystery of flying saucers is solved, and closed his bureau and, for all intents and purposes, at that point disappeared from UFO research, although his some of his close associates, notably the late Gray Barker, um, uh, kept his name alive by uh, incorporating him into the legend and lore of, of early ufology, and uh, I, I guess you could say by coining the term men in black, uh, created a whole subgenre both of science fiction and of, of UFO lore. That's about the best I can say. I don't know whether he's still living. Um, when last I heard he was, he's living in the L.A. area and uh, has not really had very much to say. There's a book that purports to be his real explanation of his case, but it has all the signs of being essentially a Gray Barker book, and that itself is 40 years old. And yet the story has persisted among hardcore UFO researchers because there have been so many subsequent cases that are very similar. They're called hush-up cases, and what they involve are these people in dark clothing showing up, uh, sometimes for UFO witnesses, less often for people involved in UFO investigations, saying something unusual or terrifying to them, and that person subsequently not wanting to talk about the subject anymore. That's the simplest possible version of the men in black, but obviously the, the story has been burlesqued very well in the, uh, in the science fiction comedy movies, uh, the men in black films and the, and the comic book and so forth, and the, the cases proceed apace. There was a wonderful episode of The X-Files, which uh, featured uh, Jesse Ventura as one of the men in black, pretty much saying that, oh, we only say things that are paradoxical to confuse you, and that's a very, very Jesse Ventura thing to say, and also the other man in black looked like Alex Trebek from the game show and was played by <laughs> Alex Trebek from the game show, and I thought, well, this is a wonderful, wonderful commentary in its own right. Obviously, the people who write this show know their stuff. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits gene and i love to hear from our listeners if you'd like to share your thoughts with us send your messages to news at the com. that's news at the com. and don't forget to check out our website at the com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums also please patronize our sponsors Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to somebody who knows his stuff. 
Alan Greenfield, old friend of mine, author of a number of writings, and amongst the recent books he's done, released in the last 10 years or so, Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. We're talking now about, I guess, the genesis of the Men in Black mythos being, of course, the case of Albert K. Bender before or after <laughs> Gray Barker got a hold of it. Now, how much of the original book they knew too much about flying saucers do you think represents a real account of the Bender experience and how much is, shall we say, extrapolated by Mr. Barker? Well, what I've done is, first of all, um, Gray was a folklorist, I think, and his approach to, to UFOs being a native West Virginian and uh, an area rich in American folklore. And folklore is an interesting thing. To say something is folkloric is not to say that it's untrue. It's to say that it's told in popular format and uh, with embellishments. And uh, one wants to hear it with embellishments, and one wants to also analyze it and see if one can get beyond the embellishments. Clearly, Gray was a, I think we used to call it purple prose, and immediately thought of Gray Barker, but uh, nothing that he wrote was not embellished. But I've compared his account with Bender's own account in his own magazine and with things that have subsequently been said about it. Plus, I've talked to some of the people directly involved and over the years, and I think you have a fairly accurate account, and they knew too much about the Flying Saucers, a book, by the way, that was reprinted about 10 years ago by my first publisher, uh, the late Ron Bonds at Illuminate Press, and uh, quite deservedly so. I wish someone uh, would pick up The Silver Bridge, which uh, was Gray's masterwork, underappreciated, undervalued, but precisely because it doesn't even pretend not to be a parable for the reality. And I think that may be as close as we actually can come. I think Gray was absolutely on the right track in recognizing that this is a mythos that has elements of truth in it as opposed to a truth that is clouded by the embellishments of mythos. And that is a key difference, and it's why I tend to be more dismissive of the nuts and bolts um, writers who are trying to pin down exactly what this object is and where it came from, and more interested in those people who um, try to get at the underlying truth through metaphor, because metaphor may be the only level at which we can actually understand it. Well, perhaps, but we're not sure of that. And Alan, I, I want to come back to something you said before. I'm not going to let you go that easily. Um, in talking about, for example, evaluating photographic evidence, I, I agree with you that in the context of the cultural environment in which things take place, events are parsed differently. And, and a great example of that, of course, is the extreme occurrences of espiritism and cardicism, the, the, the spirit healing stuff that we see primarily happening in, in Brazil and really not anywhere else. But I really want to emphasize the point that while there is some good amount of this phenomenon that we have to sort of couch in that in that context of uh, cultural parsing, I find it's a little little difficult to buy into the notion of uh, a clear photograph of a structured metal object in daylight, that somehow this is a projection of the desires or the perception of the photographer, and, and to, to equate that to something like a scientist ob observing matter at a quantum level, and that observation being colored by the context, I think we're dealing with two 
very different things there. And I think that if you try to create tenuous connections between them, you run into a, a very gray area. I, again, I, I understand what you say about the cultural context and how this colors the perception of this phenomenon, especially as we go back through history and look at things like, for example, the little people. But uh, when I see a photograph taken in the um, Sabana of Venezuela showing the exact same craft that you see in photographs um, taken by people like Ed Walters in Gulf Breeze, Florida, I can't accept the idea that, and, and actually I don't think it has merit, the idea that those images on whether it's film or a digital camera are a projection of the photographer. To me, you're kind of wading there into the Jungian sort of a thought that, well, if, for example, if all humans cease to exist, then the universe will not exist because we won't be here to perceive it anymore. I mean, I have real problems with that. Well, I don't know if the universe would cease to exist. I, I think that would be a, an anthropocentric uh, point of view. That, of the uh, extreme degree, but I've heard the, the most, thinkers. I'm not a pure subjectivist at all. I do think okay. that there are subjective elements to everything that we do and sure. say and think. What I am saying is this. I have seen so-called photography or psychic photography that is just as crystal clear and essentially fake proof as the photographs that you're referring to, which I'm well acquainted with. Having seen these and knowing that they are essentially the creation of, because they're, they're asked for, in other words, we're not talking about spontaneous phenomena that show up on film that are interpreted as apparitions. We're talking about targeted phenomena done in controlled conditions in a lab. Think of a building in Asia. Think of the Taj Mahal. Click, and what comes up is a vivid image of the Taj Mahal. No preset, no attempt at anything else, and certain people under certain circumstances, and for all we know, maybe anyone under certain circumstances, can produce what to all appearances and even under extreme photographic analysis appears to be the Taj Mahal. And indeed, perhaps it is, but it's not there in the room under controlled circumstances where the picture is being taken. So to me, if a space landed on the White House lawn, which we used to refer to, and you go up to it and knock on it, and people repeatedly do, and aliens come out and shake our hands or blow our hands off, depending on which aliens they are. <laughs> I would say to the extent that, that things exist as they apparently are objectively, this is an objective phenomenon. But one of the things that from the side that, that, that you're coming at this from that you have to grapple with is that kind of hardcore evidence remains after centuries of this phenomenon, if not millennia of this phenomenon, to be elusive. Mm -hmm. And it raises questions as to whether that rainbow-type effect, real-looking but always a little bit out of reach, isn't actually an artifact of the reality of the phenomenon. want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and tune in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Yeah. 
You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Alan Greenfield, a futurist UFO investigator, paranormal investigator. He's been studying the subject for many decades now, and he has some fascinating viewpoints to offer. David? So that being the case, Alan, um, and in all these years you've been looking at it, you, you said that you're pretty sure you don't know what what the source of this phenomenon is, but you seem to indicate that you have some thoughts about what it isn't, and I, I'm hoping you can share some of those thoughts with the listeners. What do you think this isn't? I think that there is a larger reality than our ordinary five senses, which are, after all, geared primarily through evolutionary processes towards survival primarily. Sure, sure. Okay. And let's qualify it. Constricted to a very small portion of the electromagnetic spectrum, just really the visible portion and a little bit beyond that. Sure, absolutely. We concur on that. If you get into some of the more interesting current thinking in physics. I think the most interesting physicist right now is a guy by the name of Stephen Wolfram, who's, if your math is good, I recommend uh, his book, A New Kind of Science. Oh, I'm way, familiar, very familiar with his work. Actually, he's the creator of one of the most important pieces of math simulation software called Mathematica. Yeah, and um, yeah. he actually has used Mathematica as a means of sponsoring his own research work in, in mm-hmm. pure physics and uh, is one of the few people that I know of who is both a good businessman and and a um, cutting-edge physicist. And because he is beholden to no one due to his earlier work in, shall we say, more practical computer applications, uh, and I believe he continues to do that, or his corporation does, mm-hmm. he publishes his own stuff. He could use a good editor. I mean, he uses the word and at the beginning of every third sentence which is probably, <laughs> since King James, the largest use of the since connective the and, uh, in, uh, well, he's the boss. Nobody's going to tell him not to do that. Yeah. So, um, But the point is he has propounded a, a notion of the nature of the universe, which is radically different and based somewhat, and that may also be a shortcoming, on discoveries that have come out of uh, computer technology and computer programming, which is his area of uh, primary interest, or was his area of primary interest, and uh, that would take a a program in and of itself, and I'm really not qualified to discuss his stuff in detail. Only only I can tell you that I've read A New Kind of Science, and it took me a full year to read it because the math is tough. It's not an easy read, but it is profoundly important. In any case, what I'm trying to say is there seems to be an outside of what we think of as reality. And it may be that we are, forgive me for using the, the computer-type terminology, we are hardwired for inside That is, when we talk about thinking outside the box, but I'm not sure our brains are built for anything other than survival inside the box. Outside the box thinking, therefore, may be impossible, let alone perceiving. I mean, we have very limited abilities to perceive. There are other creatures on the earth that have better perception, maybe not conception, but uh, certainly perception. Bats, for example, with their radar or sonar sense or whatever. Um, I mean, I'm not a bat. I don't know. And bats are not my specialty unless they're vampire bats. <laughs> but in any case, oh yeah, like I said, finger in many pots. But the point I'm trying to make is that we may be experiencing with the UFO phenomenon and the other phenomena that I take an interest in that are considered outside the range of recognized science, 
the manifestation as we're able to perceive it, the edges, if you will, of that greater reality that is literally outside the box, which our entire universe, including ourselves, are in. Well, that brings the up... pregnant also, silence, I wait for yeah, that. Yeah, well... It. Jack Benny's 30 seconds of dead air. <laughs> well, we're not going to have 30 seconds. I don't think we've ever had 30 seconds of dead air on the show. Well, but, he did. Um, it was your money or your life, and after 30 <laughs> seconds, he said, I'm thinking. <laughs> of course, we're always limited by the constraints of this thing we've got called our, our brain. It's pretty much all we've got got to work with and so we're always dealing with that limitation but um, that limitation seems to have gotten us into some trouble in certain ways but the brain has also done some fairly amazing things of course you're true in that there are a number of animals on this planet that have better types of perception in certain vertical areas than humans but human beings are probably a very compelling synergy of different types of sensory input mechanisms and that combined with the idea of self-awareness and the ability of questioning things that I think does put us uh, perhaps um, into its, our own box, our own category. At the same time, what we've been talking about recently on the Paracast is that maybe humans are at the top of the evolutionary uh, pyramid on this planet. Maybe, indeed, these things that we see as UFOs and as alien, quote-unquote, entities are an older species that are on the planet. Perhaps we're not the top of the food chain here. And uh, based on the things you've been saying, it, it, it's entirely reasonable, I think, to think that this might end up yielding some answers in the analysis of UFOs that the conventional thinking hasn't given us. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. That in reading some of the stuff about you on the web, uh, it seems that you've become frustrated with uh, the UFO field in terms of there not being new thinking being applied to the problem of trying to understand this. So how do we apply that new thinking, Alan? What, what are the mechanisms we should put to work here to try to open up some new doors? Uh, that's a great question. First of all, if I sound like and this is the first time that I've appeared on your program, so I want to be sure to make this clear. Mm -hmm. Nothing that I'm saying should be construed as being of the school that we have taken this as far as we can go, and all we can do is come up with a great big question mark. That is not the case. I believe that our level of understanding, though perhaps finite, is nevertheless nowhere near where it might wind up and that we might have a much better and uh, more important, perhaps more useful understanding of what it is that we're actually dealing with if we pursue certain routes. What has stymied ufology for a long time now, and I ran into this barrier in 1980, had to change course um, in order to be able to find a new handle, so to speak, and that took me 10 years, and running into someone, if there are coincidences who was working in an entirely different area and immediately seeing the the parallel that led me to writing uh, these two books, Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. By the way, thank you for calling it Euphonauts and not Euphonuts, which some <laughs> programs do, and oh, that I put up with it, but I guess they also call ufologists, ufologists, 
uh, as well, and I'm not sure that they're even mocking. It's just the uh, the changing of the times, and if you've been around long enough, you, you get to see them change into the utterly ludicrous. What I do feel is that based on my own experience and feeling that I'm in a realm that most ufologists have not explored, with a few notable exceptions, and to limited degrees, I might add, is to find those common denominators between ufology and whatever else. Um, I mentioned uh, uh, paranormal research. That's an obvious example. I touched on folklore, which is yet another example. And I touched on um, cutting-edge um, physics, which mm -hmm. is yet another example. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking with one of the great original thinkers in the paranormal realm and the futurist realm and the UFO realm, Alan Greenfield. And now we're looking at the various areas of research that he's involved in as compared to, I guess, a very restrictive environment in UFO investigation. Generally speaking, in the early days of ufology, the area of expertise that one was looking for was raw observation and perhaps meteorology. As it uh, moved out a little bit, experts were called in on astrophysics, on astronomy, but no one has really, with uh, ex the exception of Jacques Vallée and a few of his uh, followers, even touched on any of these other areas that I've mentioned, and uh, I certainly have not exhausted the possibilities. I think, uh, for example, um, one area that would be, again, uh, a whole subject unto itself would be the phenomenon of running into an energy that is outside the range of anything that we have a definition for. Wilhelm Reich called it Orgon. Um, uh, there was a man in the 19th century named von Reichenbach who called it Odd. It has parallels to key in, um, in oriental lore and in um, acupuncture work and healing. There are a lot of different prana is another Eastern, I believe, Sanskrit name for it. Uh, these may all be a an energy that we simply do not incorporate into our system of knowledge. Now, some of these may be false trails and may, in fact, be unrelated. But what I think ufologists need to do to move forward is to gain some reasonable, what you would call the intelligent layperson's knowledge of some of these other areas that might have parallels 
to the UFO phenomenon. Integrate that knowledge and see what you come up with. That's where I am now in the process of integrating it and also being an ambassador because the resistance from any one of these fields to any other of these fields, it varies, but it, it ranges from skeptical to exceedingly hostile. In fact, hostile enough that I'm interested in the, the very level of hostility. My, my favorite example is the ceremonial magic community, which clearly is into something, let's face it, UFOs are outside the mainstream of American scientific belief, and so is ceremonial magic, even more so. And yet the ceremonial magicians are more and there are many of them and many societies that support this uh, sort of work or profess to. So resistant to any association with UFOs, even though there are, I have patiently shown obvious parallels between the, the two fields, that they are openly hostile, even threatening towards me. I don't care. I'm a diehard and uh, not very easily intimidated. But in general, I would say that level of resistance itself has some kind of psychological implication that needs looking at by um, psychologists and sociologists because uh, it's as if you're invading their belief system and that's not what this is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a science of its own. Maybe the ufologists about... are, are, are actually somewhat less resistant to the notion but there too you, you encounter. But what's that got to do with, with flying saucers? And I say, ah, that's my very point. Maybe nothing. But look at it first. I have found enough parallels that I make the judicious, if tentative judgment that these are two aspects of one phenomenon. What the nature of that phenomenon is may have ultimately nothing to do with the uh, mythos in ufology or the mythos in, in the ceremonial magic community. But uh, that doesn't mean that both wouldn't profit from looking at the other and, again, gaining that intelligent layperson's knowledge of the subject so they can at least talk about it because I find woeful ignorance of the areas that I've looked into. And some of them have been areas that I've been ignorant of as well, and I've made it my business to um, deprogram myself from sure. that and, and learn the subject. I think it's important to take note, Alan, that you have two things going on. You have what is probably just the physiology of the brain, where people's neurons get hardwired, and it's very hard for them to accept new notions, especially with the kinds of cultural indoctrination that happen in our society. I think you've got that problem. And then the other problem that you find a lot in technology, and Gene will back me up on this, in that in our technological world, there's such an emphasis on specialization that the notion of the generalist, the person who knows a little bit about a lot of things, has really not only been downplayed, but also almost completely marginalized. And I think that's the problem. In the area of UFO research, what we don't have are good generalists. We have people like Stan Friedman, who are very, very intelligent, but who essentially have closed their minds to exploring all sorts of possibilities because he's got how many years vested into one specific set of theories, and he can't, at this point in his life, open his mind to anything else. I think that's a problem not just in ufology. I think that's a problem in American society. And specialization is really, while to some extent necessary in certain areas, I mm -hmm. think that, that the lack of generalists is, is probably, if anything, is the downfall of our society other than yeah. Islamist fanatics, the <laughs> ultimate specialists. It is the fact that we, we no longer have 
generalist from general practitioner physicians to what they used to call Renaissance men. I don't know why it shouldn't be Renaissance men and women. There were quite a few women as well. How about Renaissance um, people? Renaissance people. That'll do just fine. <laughs> you can take that and you can trademark it. I'll give you permission. I, I wouldn't presume to. I think maybe if we trademarked a little bit less, copyrighted a little bit less, it would be all yeah. to the good for the generalist. Uh-huh. And I, I am a generalist. I have my own passions and interests that are obviously uh, you could you could put some kind of shell around them and call them in this range or that range. But if something strikes me as relevant to what I'm trying to figure out, to the best of my ability, and you know that doesn't mean I have universal talents and that there that I'm going to be able to understand everything. I, I make it my business to find out. And what I at this point am urging ufologists to do is expand your horizons even into directions that you might find relatively boring if they seem to have a lead that might be useful to you in understanding the phenomenon that you profess to be looking for an explanation for. These 50 years after the fact, almost 60 years after the fact. You know, I find very interesting here that a lot of the people who visit the PowerCast.com forums, they're not just interested in UFOs. They're interested in ghosts, other kinds of paranormal phenomena. They're willing to accept the general range of paranormal events, but the people who get down and dirty into UFO research restrict themselves to nuts and bolts largely, and I'd like to cover that for a while. Would you be willing to stay for part of the second half of the show, Alan, because I think we've just really started to scratch the surface here, and I really don't want to leave it here and have to pick up everything all over again. I think we're on a very fascinating journey, and I'd really like to continue it. Uh, What say you? Sure. I'm flattered. I'd be glad to. Great. Before we go to part two, I'd just like to ask you very briefly if you could explain something about those two books, Secret Cipher of UFO Knots, and you see I call them UFO Knots, not nuts, or UFO Crazies, because I would include myself and, and you, and I wouldn't want to do that, although I do admit to being crazy, and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. Maybe spend a couple of minutes about what the books are about, where you can get a copy. Okay, there's there's a long story that goes with that that you might want to hold over, but briefly, the um, Secret Cipher of the UFO was originally published by the late and lamented Illuminate Press in 1995. It went two editions and went out of print when Illuminate disappeared. It disappeared because its primary mover and shaker died under mysterious circumstances. The book became a... Um, an underground bestseller with uh, fetching enormous prices on the used book market, which uh, I would ordinarily in the normal course of events have issued. I had offers from other publishers issued a updated edition, a revised edition, whatever. At that time, I had already written uh, the nucleus of a uh, sequel called Secret Rituals of the Men in Black, but I was put under a great deal of pressure by my associates in the uh, ceremonial magic community that I shouldn't be writing about UFOs. It was not an appropriate thing to do. And at that time, uh, the pressure was sufficient that I um, went off into other areas. I'll tell you what, we're out of time for the first hour. Let's pursue this in hour number two on the PowerCast. More coming with Alan Greenfield, futurist, paranormal investigator, UFO investigator. Welcome back to the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. We're back with the second hour with Alan Greenfield, author, futurist, UFO investigator, and etc., etc. And we were talking about what happened to those two books, the history of those two books. And you were talking about the publisher changes in one of those works, Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots. And maybe we can proceed from there, Alan. I had uh, several times wanted, it was a very successful book, but uh, I had several times wanted to um, bring out a revised uh, edition of it in the uh, 1990s. The book originally appeared in 1995 and had approached a couple of publishers. Invariably, they accepted it for publication. One time, I even got an advance and had to ask for it to be returned. And this is one of those examples of something that actually um, shows the barrier between um, uh, different areas of of interest. Um, I had 20 years of being deeply involved with the um, ceremonial magic community. In fact, I'm still in the process of extricating myself from that now. And about halfway into that, um, Secret Cipher was published. I was delighted. I had been a writer for many, many years without uh, ever having a book published, and uh, Illuminate was my first big break there, and uh, I was glad to have a book and glad that it was a profitable book, but I got some lectures from people high in the occult ceremonial magical world to the effect that I was truly um, going to suffer grave consequences if I didn't get out of that area, and I thought, well, this is very interesting. Now, I said none of this, but it really went through my mind very clearly. This is precisely what they mean by being silent, and I'm just not going to go for it. But the fact is, it took me quite some time with the kind of flack that I got to, and also the support of a a very sympathetic publisher at Minutus Press, which is a new label for the antiquities of the Illuminati people. They have a most excellent website, and they um, they were very supportive. At first, uh, Borderland Sciences Research Associates, which is one of the oldest organizations in this whole area, had uh, offered to publish it. They withdrew under circumstances that suggest to me that perhaps they got some pressure from the same occultists that were pressuring me. I don't know. In any case, uh, Minutus picked it up and published uh, the revised uh, edition of Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, and I'm much happier with the revised edition anyway. And they're a small press. They've taken advantage of, of using the, um, what do they call it, the uh, publish-on-demand uh, system. So they, um, I imagine their investment wasn't too much. They also brought out Secret Rituals of the Men in Black, the uh, sequel. I had written the core of it uh, at almost the same time as uh, Secret Cipher. It could have been published, I imagine, as one one edition, in fact. And that just didn't really occur to me until I had 20 years or more to think about it. But um, 
they are out in separate editions. They can be read together or, or individually. And they concentrate on a particular area that broke me out of the, the kind of wall that I see many people slamming into. And I can tell you the story about that, if you would like me to. Sure, go ahead. Okay. In 1980, I wrote this little thing that would amount to a swan song in ufology, quoting Jean uh, Duplantier saying, it's like a long walk down an endless tube. And I said that while I don't think it's an endless tube and I still am interested in the phenomenon, I don't know where to take this. I'm stuck. I mean, I've done the field investigations. I've done the computer evaluations. I've done the entire repertoire of what ufology has available. And I don't know what it is that I'm dealing with, and I don't have any special handle on it. Ten years later, I met a gentleman from Buffalo, New York, now deceased, who was working in an entirely different area. He was working on gematria, a type of uh, cipher, if you will, based on uh, traditional uh, Hebrew Kabbalistic uh, concepts, but applied to the uh, English language and a numerical value. This is not to be confused with numerology. That's a much simpler and less reliable system and had produced some really interesting results in his own area of interest, which was the occult. He had no interest in UFOs to my knowledge at all. And he explained this system to me because I uh, shared his line of interests as well. And uh, at first I thought, well, this is interesting. It seems to be useful in this area and uh, perhaps has something to it. He was a, um, a computer programmer, so he had put it into a easy-to-analyze form, and um, using his program, which was called Lexicon, I, um, which is a very dated program now, I, I don't even know that it's available anymore. In any case, I applied, just on a whim, really, I applied the particular cipher, that is, taking the numerical value generated for each of the letters in the English alphabet to some of the American cases of UFOs that produced what I call the funny names. Furkan, um, uh, Ramu, I don't know, you, you, you could probably, Orthon. Um, the names of supposed beings. Yes, including those from cases I knew to be fakes. But nevertheless, if I were going to do something that was a fake, I probably could come up with a name more numinous than Ramu. And I suspect uh, that uh, if you look at the people that produce some of these more suspect cases, ranging from something that's patently a fraud, at least at one level, the Adamski case, to things that are more like transmediumship and have more to do with, with the history of mediumship than with the history of UFOs like Mark Probert, you find that you get very, very meaningful results in analyzing these names uh, using the, the general principles of this system of gematria. Now, in the books, I explain this much more simply, assuming people know nothing whatever about it and uh, at most have some vague idea of what numerology is. Systems like gematria and other uh, Kabbalistic systems are much more complex, but uh, the bottom line is I had a breakthrough, which is that if you took an immediate past case in which somehow or other a name or, or planetary name that isn't familiar or something else that is conspicuously almost comical 
um, Indrid Cold comes to mind in the uh, Woodrow Derenberger uh, case in West Virginia in the 1960s. One was able to predict first retroactively, that is, I would look at the case, take the name Indrid Cold, the planet that he professed to be from, etc., use those names, and the name of the next town that Mothman, this was during the Mothman wave in West Virginia in the late 1960s, which uh, John Keel and Gray Barker are the two great documenters of in each their own very different ways, where the next uh, case would manifest. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsored button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking with Alan Greenfield, who's a futurist author of such books as Secret Cipher, The UFO Knots, and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. And we're talking about now this hidden cipher and where it's taking us. Okay. So the cipher seemed to indicate, looking at past cases and allowing for the fact that hindsight is 2020, that there was something about the strange names that showed up in connection with close encounter cases, or often showed up, that could lead you to know when and where the next similar occurrence would take place. Well. Having established it with past cases, I began to look around, and when I would give talks or interact with people who knew about cases, I would ask them, did anything 
funny in the way of a strange name or something. In certain cases, times being more sophisticated now, people would be reluctant to mention some of these names because they do sound rather silly. Raymond Natali might have sounded strange in the context of Mark Probert's uh, inner circle in the 1940s, but it probably sounded ludicrous in terms of the all-too-hip 1970s, 1980s, whatever. People would come forward with names. Sometimes I would take them down at talks that I was giving. In fact, at the uh, in the appendix to uh, Secret Rituals of the Men in Black, I give the um, the text of a talk that I gave at the 1994-1995 um, uh, uh, National UFO Conference on this very subject. And then afterwards, I asked people if they had any such cases, and there were several in the audience that, that came up with them. I got the dates and locations, and I was able, since they were contemporary cases then, I was able to successfully predict where the next manifestation of a similar sort would show up. Not because I have some futurist or not, I don't have any supernatural knowledge of the future. I was simply doing a mechanical evaluation of the name using this cipher. And I'm, I'm trying to give you a percentage. I would say something like 90% of the time I was able to accurately predict where the next case would show up. What I wondered about and what I uh, wanted to know was, would it be possible to actually show up in advance, sit around and wait with cameras and so forth, and then and photograph the case? That mm. became more difficult. It's as if there were some interaction between the phenomenon and the discoveries that I was making. And I began to say in talks, you'd best use this um, cipher soon, because historically, I believe there had been previous ciphers. I believe there was a, a change in ciphers, for example, in the, 19, in the early 19th century to the one that is presently in use. And I think that because, precisely because I have exposed this to public light, the people that read what I have to say and the people who talk about that in turn, um, you've got a fairly substantial number of people who could predict cases. Hmm. After a reasonable interval of time, I think you will find that uh, the cipher will no longer be valid. That's now, that I raises a larger question here, that you're able to supposedly predict UFO events, but if this gets too far and why too many people are able to do it, does that kind of eliminate this ability or what? The code changes, but I, um, I, I want to say this. It's very important. That has not so far proven to be the case. I am still getting good results with this as long as I have access to cases. I've even had several cases that were entirely bogus thrown at me, and of course nothing happened, and I was told after the fact that they were bogus and they were meant to be uh, essentially controls, and that's fine. Uh, I encourage people to work with this themselves, that is, learn, read the books, learn the um, the methodology involved, make their own inferences, show up and see if something shows up. Alan, the time, I, it will. I, I want to make sure I understand this, though. I mean, saying that you've been able to employ a mathematical cipher, which is originally derived from the Kabbalah and which assigns a numerical value to Hebrew characters, that technique, and then utilizes the numbers that result from those Hebrew characters to then essentially predict the appearance of other things. Actually, there's a great Darren Aronofsky movie called Pi that ties this in 
to uh, a chaos theory. But but all of that aside, you're saying that you ran uh, names from what were supposedly real cases and then from what you knew were bogus cases, and these all fit within the matrix of predictability. Um, what meaning are we supposed to derive from that? I mean, what, what's the underlying truth or, or, or knowledge to that? Well, that that is pretty much the subject of my books, and I, I'm not sure if I can put it in succinct form. I speculate on what that might be, and I come up with what I will, will call a mythological structure because I don't know how close to the truth that it is, but that it fits the facts on the ground as well as I can, which is the assumption that whatever generates the phenomenon itself also generates these names or terms in association with the cases, including, by the way, the very odd term that Albert Bender, who we were talking about in the previous segment, he received a word from the men in black called Kaik, which was spelled K-Z-I-K, raising the uh, uh, question, if it was pronounced as if it were K-A-Y-I-K, why didn't he pronounce it that way? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that spelled as he spells it, it does uh, predict the next silencing case of a similar nature, and I doubt if he knew this uh, code, which wasn't even discovered until 1974 and didn't uh, didn't come to my attention until the early 1990s. It uh, didn't come to the attention of anyone in this country, in fact, until the the, the 1980s. I, I seriously doubt in 1952, was it, uh, 53, somewhere in there, that he had access to this. Uh, clearly, it's something that the phenomenon itself generates, and perhaps it does have something to do with chaos theory in a sense. Uh, it may be part of the matrix of synchronicity, that is the a-causal principle which comes from that great what's it outside of our reality as we understand it that manifests in our world in ways that we can comprehend and understand and uh, they may be odd and unusual and offbeat but uh, nevertheless are manifestations of something that just doesn't fit and we fit it in as best we can, as, as we always do with things that we that we don't have a complete picture of, uh, from stars to mirages. Are we partly I, I don't want to go too far afield on this. Right, what right. I think may be going on, the, the, the mythos that I concentrated on, the labeling it as such, is that whatever the source of UFOs may be, they plant these clues in cases that they know that will, will receive publicity so that others who are tied into their network, whatever that may be, mm -hmm. can know where to go in order to have um, access to the next manifestation. Now, what access to the manifestation means, I don't know. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hey. 
Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking with one of the great original thinkers in the UFO field and the field of the paranormal, Alan Greenfield, author of Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. And we're talking about the Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots. And David, do you want to kind of expand on that question? Well, yeah, I've got an intellectual hand grenade to throw into this discussion now. Okay, let's wait for the bomb to drop. Well, this is all very interesting, and Alan, uh, you can laugh me off the air on this next question, but how does this all intersect with the 10% of what I suspect are genuinely unexplained crop circles? Do we have this ongoing phenomenon, which, as I said, there are 10%, I, I'm guessing it's about 10% of these things that we know for sure are not man-made. They seem to be some strange type of phenomenon that we really truly don't have a handle on but in analyzing some of these otter crop circles it would seem to support this idea of an exposition of a series of rules that could contribute i suppose to a reality cipher i did not explore crop circles specifically in terms of in secret ciphers or secret rituals mm -hmm. but it would fit right in with secret rituals because one of the things that I look at are the creation of, and here again, we're going from one field to another, of That's talismanic right. magic, uh, which uh, involves certain sigils, which many crop circles, uh, and probably the more authentic ones actually often resemble. I would say they would fall within the range of predictability. The thing is, crop circles are inherently mute. They don't have words in English, or they would be much more suspect. So uh, <laughs> unless you were able to reduce it to something, in other words, decipher it to the extent of this means this or this correlates to this with a, a specific word involved, I'm not sure how I would apply the cipher to predict the next crop circle. But I have a hunch. I mean, you, you sort of hit me with that one off the, uh, like a grenade off the top of, uh -huh. of my head. I'm just sort yeah. of uh, thinking at the gallop here. I wouldn't be at all surprised if there wouldn't be a way to reduce a, crop, a specific crop circle case uh, involving no contact with any alien element except the crop circle itself to a word or to a um, some kind of signature that could be interpreted as a unique word which could in turn be used to apply to the cipher mm -hmm. um, because I think that's the way I think what we now call crop circles probably are the origin of most of the medieval and earlier magical sigils they're very strange looking to those unfamiliar with them but uh, if you looked at them without any of the wording that is superimposed on them uh, they would look very much to you like um, a lot of the crop circle cases do, particularly the ones that aren't simply interesting geometrical figures, but but look like mathematical symbols, but not in any in any form of mathematics that we know. Right. And um, um, somewhere in there, there's probably language, but it would be a specialized subsection. See, what I'm trying to do with these books is there's only so much research that I'm going to be able to do with this. And you know, at the age of 60, I don't expect to solve 
fulfills all of the parameters of this in my lifetime. What I hope to do with these books is to get other people working in this area and applying it to their particular specialties, their particular interests, their particular take on this, and see how well it works for them. I expect that it will lead in directions that I've never even thought of. You bring up uh, crop circles, uh, that's something that I have an interest in, but it's not what I chose to concentrate on in the, in, in the books because they're not readily amenable to being reduced to particular words, but uh, there probably are hundreds of areas that, uh, that I haven't covered and that might re reveal entirely different things other than the uh, spectacular but nevertheless relatively simple ability to go from a name or word or planetary name generated in one case to saying there will be another significant case on such and such a date at such and such a time at such and such a place. That's very, very useful, but there might be more profound uses yet, and I might yet uh, come out with some additional findings of my own, but this is pretty much, if you've read these two books, you are where I am right now, and I don't want people to stop there. I want them to apply this to their own work, and the proof of the pudding is in the eating. If you find that uh, my system doesn't work for you, please give me feedback and feel free to publish a scathing review. But that hasn't happened so far. The only people who give scathing reviews are people who haven't worked with the system. Those who have are always impressed. Are we there? We're there. Let's look at the second book here, okay? And that's Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. Now, right. through the years of ufology, whenever we do believe, or most people seem to believe in men in black, they assume them to be real people who come from the government, or maybe they are the UFO noughts. So I get the impression from you that there's a lot more involved here in what the men in black really are. So please explain. I, I think that at times they may be real people in unreal roles in their life. I, hmm. I think that uh, being a, a man in black, and a, they almost always are, in this case, men. Women rarely show up in that role. I can't think of a case offhand, but I, I, in the back of my mind there are a couple. But uh, And they don't always appear in threes either. Sometimes they're an individual, sometimes there are two, sometimes there's a bunch in dark clothing that usually the characteristic is they, they approach a witness or, or an investigator on a plausible basis and then they proceed to say a lot of things, one being an, one non sequitur after another after another, all said in a very numinous uh, way and sometimes making vague or not so vague threats and then they're gone and any credentials they've shown uh, turn out to be bogus. I have some reason to believe not because uh, of the men in black cases that have shown up in ufology but because of similar cases that have shown up in other areas. At least some of the time the, these may be people who are ordinary people who become in a sense possessed uh, by what's it, whatever, the same source as the UFO phenomenon, act out this role and then forget it. Oh and, boy. Uh, oh boy. That's why they disappear back into the environment because they genuinely have no memory of it having happened. Hmm. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. 
To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Alan Greenfield, an original thinker on the entire field of the paranormal. So we're talking about the first stage of being a man in black, and that is people who don't even remember the experience take on this role, assume this guy's, and you are going to go into a second instance. Well, to complicate things further, I, I do think that there is there are certain cases, not the originals, but the sort of copycat cases that were aided and abetted in two different directions. One I know about with, with absolute certainty, and that is the case of uh, ufologists who both of us know who have played out men in black cases uh, just as a kind of a joke. And um, they've done pretty well at it. Sometimes these cases are, the ca- are cases of UFO investigators who apparently don't realize that relative to the general population of, uh, of Podunk, Iowa, seem to be strange-looking people and often wear dark clothing, asking questions about UFOs, they become the men in black. It happened to John Keel once in West Virginia, as I recall, and it has, in fact, happened to me. Not in recent years, but I do recall a case that um, Jim Mosley and I and a uh, couple of local people were investigating involving a series of UFO cases, and we were going door-to-door, and we did have cameras and tape recorders. It was a rainy day, so we tended to have online and fog coats, and somewhere about halfway through the entire experience, it occurred to me that any investigator that came through a couple of weeks later would probably be told by the four guys in black clothing and strange instruments coming to their door and asking about UFOs. With strange um, accents. Yeah. Um, well, not in my case. This was in Union <laughs> City, Georgia, but uh, and that's where I'm from. But nevertheless, uh, that's the, probably the most mundane explanation. The third explanation for some copycat cases is deliberate disinformation generated by the CIA, and I have good reason to believe that. This is not pure speculation. I, I spoke many years ago uh, with uh, Major Dewey Fournay. I think, actually, you may have been president at this convention that um, the three big UFO outfits of that period put on, 1976, somewhere in the Midwest. Yes, yes. Yeah, and uh, I asked uh, Fournay, who was very forthcoming, uh, what he thought about certain instances, and he gave me this distinct impression 
that, that the 1953 CIA panel was, in fact, a, a decision was made to disrupt UFO organizations, not for any kind of extraterrestrial reason or anything that they were hiding in Area 51, but because in the July 1952 cases over D.C., in fact, the, um, the, the then available channels for detecting a Soviet attack on America were sufficiently jammed that had the Soviets attacked, we wouldn't have known about it until it was too late. That is, hmm. planes were looking for UFOs, uh, radio chatter was filled with talk about UFOs, radar was looking for UFOs, not for Soviet planes, and um, uh, ground observer core filter centers were, were jammed with UFO reports, not looking, at, once again, for what they were there to look for, which is Soviet planes, hypothetically. And um, the fact is that the CIA panel concluded that UFO organizations could aid and abet a deliberate attempt to... To compromise... A deliberate the, uh, attempt yeah. to uh, sort of flood the airwaves with um, UFO cases at a time when something else was, in fact, going on. At that point, they mm -hmm. really wanted UFO organizations to cease to exist. However, that is not going to account for the really weirder cases, and I think that that, while an interesting explanation and an interesting footnote, is nevertheless that. It's a footnote. It's not the, the center of the phenomenon. Well, you know, it raises the larger question of some of the other red herrings that have occurred in the UFO field in recent years. Of course, we're not going to talk about certain contact cases, but like, for example, Project Serpo, which is supposedly involving the interaction between our people and their people, a foreign or alien oh. Earth people exchange from all this other crap and it gets you completely wild here and is that something that some officialdom is perpetrating or just a bunch of individuals who have nothing better to do than to stoke the fires and get some glory i think the latter in my judgment uh, i see no indication whatsoever that the the government at this point has um, and this has been true for a long time now has any particular interest in in ufos as such there was a period starting in the 1960s when a government interest sort of came to its peak and then immediately uh, after the Condon report uh, began to get out of the UFO business altogether. And uh, this widely reported and rather routine case at uh, O'Hare Airport in Chicago just, mm -hmm. um, well, reported a few days ago, but uh, Back uh, November, in November, so. uh, the, yeah. the, the very fact that what you see from officialdom is uh, confusion and no one stepping in to even give a pat answer as to what was going on, just nervous reporters with that silly, goofy way that reporters still deal with UFOs. They deal with sex and UFOs with the same kind of <laughs> silliness. And, well, at um, least if we have sexy aliens, it makes sense. Otherwise, it makes less sense. <laughs> well, but if you have sexy aliens, you get reporters who would make even more inane uh, uh, jokes yeah. about it. So uh, the sexy saucer stories probably are, are most difficult to deal with, and there are plenty of those out there. There are, I think, probably more than most people estimate, and there's certainly, in a lot of the abduction cases, uh, there's a crossover between reality um, uh, and uh, Freudian reality, which um, is something that Gray Barker spotted in his 
1971 book, The Silver Bridge, and was fairly explicit about it, but nobody seemed to notice. I guess it makes ufologists uncomfortable as well. But uh, look at this for what it is, not for what you want it to be, unless you're into simply it being your fantasy. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Alan Greenfield joins us. He has been in this game studying the paranormal for more than four decades, probably four and a half decades or five decades now. And he's author of Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots, which we talked about for a while, and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. And we've talked to the Men in Black as more of physical people. Now, John Keel, I think, referred to them as tricksters, and that takes us back to folklore. Yes, and that, that, that is, of course, the obvious portion of the cases that I omitted deliberately. Just as I think UFOs in, I love to say, the key instances of uh, cases that simply cannot be explained by any kind of ordinary means. I think that there is a core of uh, men in black type experiences for lack of, we'll say the mysterious stranger experiences, although I believe that was the name of a radio program in the grand old days of network radio, uh, the mysterious stranger who shows up and does things and leaves and vanishes without a trace phenomenon that are suggestive of something very similar to what I'm saying about UFOs, that they are not there at all in the, in the ordinary sense. They are a manifestation of something paranormal and are cases uh, more amenable to the paranormal, particularly when one is looking at this from the standpoint that there are cases that are similar going back many, many centuries, uh, going back, in fact, even into ancient times. Uh, in medieval times, in fact, they were called the man in black cases. And while um, coining the term men in black may have related to that, I think not. I think it's simply trying to grope for a term that makes sense for the um, further composite phenomenon. Well, obviously, it's not a government agent, and it's not, uh, we'll just say, Jim and Gray doing uh, funny tricks on people, and it, it's not, not any of the conventional wisdom or any of the uh, sophisticated explanations that I've tried to give. It's something else if it goes on for centuries and has a, has a core value that is similar. Not only that, but in some of these cases, these same funny words or the same type of funny words show up, and they do predict the next UFO or man in black type case. In those cases, I think we're dealing with a purely paranormal phenomenon. I don't know what a third-party observer would see in cases of that sort. I suspect they would see something. I suspect it would differ to a greater extent than the, the well-known phenomenon of four people watching a car wreck and having four different views on it. it, would, it the, the phenomenon would 
would have its common elements that everyone would see, and then it would have elements that bounced off the individual psyches of the people who witness it. Unfortunately, or maybe not coincidentally, we don't have a lot of cases uh, where you have multiple witnesses to men in black. Well, you mentioned that these cases, these appearances of these men in black go back hundreds of years. Could you be more specific? I mean, what's the earliest reported case of something like this? I'm not sure I could give you the earliest reported case, but to be fairly obvious about it, I would say that the modern interpretation is usually given as angels, but in the book of Genesis, uh, we have Abraham being visited uh, by uh, Mescalim, uh, divine messengers, who are uh, tell him that uh, they're off to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, Abraham, being a um, rambunctious fellow, starts bargaining with them uh, as to um, how many good people you would have to find in Sodom and Gomorrah in order to spare the cities. And uh, we have a bargaining session going on there that um, involves three individuals who are obviously of a mysterious nature, who are uh, uh, predicting a future event and go off to do it. Now, when you get that early, obviously you can't really validate the case or not. All right. you can say is that the story is of ancient origin and it's very similar in its core values to um, stories of that sort. But in, in fact, you have, I can't give you one right offhand, but I've, I've seen stories going back to ancient Sumer, which would be a couple of thousand years before uh, the purported time of Abraham that, um, that uh, clearly are of the same variety. The visit of the Oannes, from which we derive the common name John in English, to the uh, Sumerian civilization who uh, shows up, uh, gives uh, the ignorant people of Sumer all of their knowledge of civilization, and then disappears back into the Persian Gulf. That seems like a very, very similar story, um, a little more positive than a lot of men in black cases, but a very similar story. So any kind of um, uh, angelic appearances you're, you're, we're putting into that group, then what about Jesus Christ? Would he not fit that description, essentially? It might, except that, and boy, we're getting into a difficult area here, uh, <laughs> and a totally different area. I would say that many of the stories that uh, made it into the New Testament about the acts of Jesus are almost word for word the same stories that are told about uh, uh, Elijah the prophet from a much earlier period. So um, you, you would be getting into there which is a core story and which is which is imitative. Um, right, it has right. been speculated that there is a so-called Q document, the source document, that, uh, that has uh, a group of sayings of Jesus that were elaborated into the, the stories that we're familiar with. And I don't doubt the in existence of the individual at all. In fact, I think there's pretty good early evidence of that. What I um, would say is the more mysterious aspects of, uh, of the life of Jesus um, are explainable in terms of earlier um, uh, Hebrew um, myth cycles. It is, however, true that the post-mortem appearances of Christ uh, recorded in the um, New Testament do have some similarity to um, the angelic slash men in black type stories. And certainly, uh, even in his own time, it created a great deal of controversy. The experience of Paul on the road to Damascus, which changed him from a, uh, a Jewish zealot to a, um, a disciple of Christ, 
he often had disputations with the uh, people who had actually known Jesus in his lifetime, including his members of his immediate family, and he would say he saw him in a vision, and they would say, well, what your vision bears very little resemblance to the person that we knew, and that was an mm-hmm. ongoing debate that uh, yeah. among the early, the early Christians. That particular instance does bear all the earmarks of the same kind of case. Of course, we're getting in a very touchy area here, and I do respect uh, people's beliefs where that area is concerned, and I'm not um, attempting to step on those belief systems. Hey, I'll tell you, listen, on this show, we have basically (laughs) addressed the belief systems. We had one guest, Acharya S., who actually said Jesus Christ never existed as a person, but we're not going to go there right now. You are about to enter another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, the complete dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Alan Greenfield, an original thinker who's author of Secret Rituals of the Men in Black and the Secret Cipher of UFO Knots. You see, I was going to say something else, but my brain kind of kind of faded there. You know, you and I have had some really interesting interactions with the UFO field, of course, back in the 1960s. Richard Hall, then the, I guess we call him acting director of NICAP, threw us out, I guess because he hated me. So we went through a lot of interesting experiences. Now, I notice as far as UFO feel is concerned, and maybe we'll use this as our final segment of this particular episode, that in the 50s, late 40s, 60s, etc., we were talking about UFOs as spaceships. And around the time that you and I were talking about UFOs from alternate realities, Alan, more and more people seem to get into that bag. Certainly, John Keel did a lot of other people. Then it looks like in the 1980s, they went back to the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And why do you think they went back? It seemed as if a lot of thinkers were coming out with interesting ideas and then it seemed to just contract and go back to the way it was earlier. I, I'm pretty sure I know why, why it happened, actually. There, there, there are two components 
to it. One is, like I said, um, had I not chanced upon this particular person whose name was uh, Tim Coutte, um, passed on last year, he was a good friend of mine, I probably would not have found a lead to take me in another direction because I cast around all during the 80s without finding anything new to say on the subject. So I would, you know, occasionally keep my hand in with what was going on and certainly I would, you know, give attention to something that uh, of an unusual nature that was uh, was taking place. But um, essentially, I was stuck, and I think that happened to a lot of people. I broke out of that because I found someone from another field who had something that I just happened to recognize as being applicable to the UFO field, and once I did, I was off and running again. Because just to keep doing the same thing over and over without any differentiation in results, it can be very demoralizing or, in my case, frustrating. Um, um, It certainly doesn't demoralize me. It just means I'm looking for a new angle. That's just the way I process things. The other thing is the tendency, and it doesn't just apply to ufology, certainly. I run into the same thing in the occult world, only much, much, much worse, is the tendency for really illuminating numinous areas to be taken over by organizational bureaucrats who proceed to set rules that they can comprehend and understand. When I say rules, I don't mean necessarily written rules, but if you will, pressures to keep things within manageable, understandable, comprehensible limits. Dick Hall was certainly an example of that in the 1960s. We were examples of the the new wave of people coming coming into the field without uh, the same kind of blinders on. As far as I know, he's still saying the same things that he was saying when he was at 1536 Connecticut Avenue in D.C. Which and is where, within blocks of where, in the movie The Day of Earth stood still, Michael Rennie as Klaatu was shot down. Yes, he was shot down in DuPont Circle, which is where we were staying, actually, as I recall. No, um, no, but, uh, no, no, gentlemen, he was shot down on a soundstage in California. Thank you. All right. Let's, let's, <laughs> technically, yes, but it was described in the movie, which, uh, which I fully believe in, as, uh, as being at DuPont Circle, because the cab driver mentions that just as uh, he has to get out and run for it. I maintain he was running towards NICAP office, but it was too early. <laughs> he was looking for Major Kehoe. I uh, know uh, he was looking for Dick Hall, I think, because he wanted a lawyer. But that's not important. What is important, what is important is to realize that bureaucrats ruin the kind of research that we need to be doing because they want to keep things within some kind of safe limit. They've made as big a leap as they're going to make in their whole life by simply saying there may be something to UFOs. That's where it stops. The next generation, they take another leap and they say, and the close encounter cases may have something to them, and that's where they stop. The tendency towards bureaucratizing and to ossification is almost a universal, and the only thing you can do is have people like me that periodically shake things up, stir the pot, and hope that that uh, shakes those people loose from their jobs because we don't need them. What we do need are people who are intelligent, systematic, scientific, detached, but at the same time passionately involved in the work that they're doing and imaginative about it. In other words, they need to be futurists. 
They need to see beyond where we are now and go on to the next level. And if I ever stop doing that, I will stop doing the whole thing. So what do we do here in 2007 to get UFO research off dead center? Because it looks to me, and certainly I think David agrees with me, yeah. nothing's really happening. We're stuck with lots of people yelling at each other back and forth, plenty of yelling, very little progress. We're just sighting collecting. They collect sightings and they say, here, here's another evidence that they're from Zeta Reticuli. What do we do to get to the next level of investigation? Well, first of all, just the, the raw work of gathering cases is something that's a necessary prerequisite. So I certainly don't, something like the National UFO Reporting Center, I think they're doing a good job of just keeping track of cases. Their opinions don't interest me so much as uh, I, we do need access to that material. Um, one wonders if what they define as a case is going to eliminate a lot of the things that I would most like to look at. I can't answer for you. I can only answer that for myself, what I'm trying to do with lots of resistance to it, and again, not so much from the ufologists, but from other areas, is to interest people who are involved in this work to look at related areas as related to become informed about those areas, especially those portions that seem to be related, and to try and coordinate the knowledge of area A, B, C, D, etc., so that they form um, a much more complete picture of what is being dealt with as an isolated phenomenon, thus eliminating the possibility of going beyond what were essentially the theories that were propounded in the 1940s by Mead Lane and others. So we're talking here of basically eliminating the tunnel vision. Exactly. We're more likely to make an anti-gravity device out of cheese and coffee. Well, you have to make the decision whether you want to try or you don't. Yes, it's, it's a difficult task, yeah. but um, so was the polio vaccine, and so was the smallpox vaccine, so well, was the of, development of, of uh, rocket technology. Things are not easy when they're important, and uh, persistence pays, I find. Yeah, um, I, I would. the optimist to me would, would like to believe in that the more that I see what happens here in the UFO field, and you two gentlemen have a lot more years playing in the sandbox than I do. But um, what I see is that the signal-to-noise ratio doesn't doesn't appear to be optimum for arriving at any real understanding. And it's, and it's unfortunate. I think that many of us think that in terms of understanding what we are, this is a, an incredibly important area. And... It's frustrating to see that organized religion gets so much more funding and attention than any realm of paranormal research that I find viable. And, my God, they're basically the same field, except in one, we have a bunch of institutionalized material that doesn't really have bearing on current realities. Uh, and, and in the other, we have all sorts of contemporary data that doesn't seem to capture the attention of people because it doesn't provide all the answers. And that's it's interesting to see the belief system of religion where people cling to it because it provides essentially a one-stop shop for all the answers one theoretically needs to live one's life, where with uh, the paranormal, all it does is bring up more questions than answers. I, I just find it frustrating, and I'd like to think that I could live to see the day where this would flip, but I, I, I doubt it at this point. 
Well, almost all important questions are multi-generational in finding any kind of solution to them. Look at the long history of, of medicine as uh, a fairly good example of something where the most primitive ideas took thousands of years to evolve where they are now, and they're by no means at a point where you can say they have fully understood human physiology and the, the, uh, the cycles of, of, for example, um, uh, contagious disease and so forth we're still studying and maybe we're not in the infancy of the science now but we are certainly uh, probably many generations away from fully understanding exactly exactly what's going on and what can or should be done about it that doesn't mean that you don't make a contribution there's a very interesting um, uh, phrase in the Talmud that I always use it isn't for you to complete the work but neither may you put it aside altogether and I live by that and uh, it gives me a certain serenity in knowing that um, if I'm doing my best to make a contribution to this, I may not see the end of it. But on the other hand, perhaps what I've done will provide a, a building block for it. And that's enough to keep me going. And who knows? Part of the, Maybe yeah, I may, may stumble onto it. <laughs> As the old saying goes, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Exactly. Yeah. I want to thank you very much. Alan Greenfield, futurist. He's been involved in these fields of research for, I guess, four and a half, four or five decades now for a very great part of his life. He's author of Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots, Secret Rituals of Men in Black. They'll both be linked at the Paracast.com website. Old friend, Alan Greenfield, thanks so much for joining us on the Paracast. It's been a privilege. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Well, what can I say? If you've always looked at UFOs in one particular way, maybe now you'll look at them a different way. And again, I want to thank Alan Greenfield for joining us on the Paracast, and hopefully he'll be back soon. By the way, if you have comments or questions, go to the Paracast forums, and you get there by going to theparacast.com, and there's a discussion forums link on this fancy black-white toolbar at the top of the screen. So that's how you get there, and you can make your comments about the show. Next week, we'll be talking to Peter Davenport, who's director of the National UFO Reporting Center, and we're going to ask him, of course, on what's known so far about that case involving UFOs at O'Hare Airport in Chicago. We'll talk about what's the best best way to investigate those cases and lots more you'll hear about it next week on the paracast the paracast with gene steinberg and david Pietney is a production of making the impossible incorporated join us next week for a new adventure in the paracast